Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. Tom Wessels wrote one of my favorite books, The Myth of Progress Toward a Sustainable Future, and I'm really glad to be talking with him. He's a forest ecologist, a professor at Antioch, New England, a writer, and a guy who can explain big issues really clearly. In our conversation, he explains how material progress affluence and economic growth are not only in the pantheon of campaign promises, they're destructive fantasies born of a radical disconnect from nature. We live in complex systems, not linear ones, Tom explains. He tells us about scientific laws such as limits to growth, the second law of thermodynamics, we're talking entropy, baby, and self-organization that really call the shots in earthly life and how living within those laws can mean deeper, more fulfilling lives. We talked in his beautiful and modest hand-built home in New Hampshire. You'll hear the occasional squeak from rocking chairs and then we get all excited at seeing a tiny fawn in the field outside, which is ironic when you look at the cover of his book, You can subscribe to the Big Chew podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and on our Meet Your Myth website, www.meetyourmyth.com. Books we talk about and more are included in the show notes there. Here's our conversation. One of my favorite books. My, my wife thinks it's my most important book. It's the one I'm most proud of. Is it? Yeah. The Myth of Progress. And even the photo of the deer <laughs> stuck in a parking garage. It's just so apt. And it it's, is. Because it relates to the last chapter, which is disconnection. That right. is, you know, a disconnected scene. It's interesting. The publisher wanted me to design the cover. I said, I have no idea about cover design. So they sent the mock-up of this. And I was like, whoa. Then I realized it really does fit. Because... Yeah. Um, it is. It's an image of being disconnected. And it's also very sad. It's mm-hmm. so sad, you know? And and yet this is, it's not a, a sad book. It just shows how <laughs> how sad we've become. But, and it's just a small, such a small book. That and was intentional. Because, you know, things like this, I think a lot of books could be shorter and yeah. have more impact. Um, but I think people just want to really fill them up. And I don't think you have to. I think you can figure out what's essential and then it down to that. Well, I, I, this is my third go round with this book. I read it every couple of years mm-hmm. and um, because there's always something that I get from it that I, I hadn't understood before. And I have to say, I've been doing different interviews with people and systems keep, you know, mm-hmm. systems idea keeps coming up. I was talking with this fellow, uh, Jim McAllister, who used to work with Lynn Margulis mm-hmm. for about 10 years 
and talking about her work and that total shift in evolution mm -hmm. and evolutionary thinking. And of course, that's, you know, the systems, the nested systems and yeah. stuff is what you're talking about here. And it all just makes so much sense. And I just want to start out by saying, why don't we know more about this? I don't know. You know, I started teaching a class at Antioch back in the early 1990s that was based on complex system science. Um, because I realized that if we're ever going to really understand our environmental problems, we got to understand complexity. We can't yeah. approach them in a linear way. I'm still amazed that even, I, I was teaching that class up just until this year, but it just amazed me that undergraduates weren't coming out of college with any background in complex system stuff. They'd come and they'd take my class, which is based on this book, and they'd be blown away, thinking, why haven't I ever heard about this? Why don't I know it? Because it's very powerful because once you understand, the same principles apply to any system. Doesn't matter if it's biological, ecological, meteorological, human systems. Doesn't right. really matter. Sociological. Yeah. You know, um, you're going to be looking at feedback loops. You're going to be looking at emergent properties, bifurcation events. And once you know the basic principles, you can be so transdisciplinary. That's yeah. why I felt that I could easily write this book, even though I know nothing about economics. When you were talking about bifurcation, and, and we'll get to that, but I actually wrote in the, mar I wrote in the margins. I'm terrible with my books. Is Trump a bifurcation event? He may be. And, you know, that's an example. The whole election was an example of people expecting, at least people who were giving commentary on the election, mm -hmm. expecting it to proceed in a linear fashion. Mm -hmm. Well, this percentage and that percentage and mm -hmm. this many voters, and then bingo, all of a sudden you have this loop that comes in that nobody was aware of. Mm -hmm. To me, it's like kind of business as usual, except the veil has dropped. <laughs> you know, now, yeah, now you exactly. Guys... Now you can really see. Um, yeah, I mean, and there's... We have all these feedback loops working in our socioeconomic system. And they're going to start, I mean, they're already starting, but I think they're going to start to have real significant um, visibility in, you know, 10, 20 years. It's going to become really apparent that, golly, the trajectory we're on is not working. Things are not getting better. Yeah, so you say here, uh, right in the beginning of the book, that there are a few critical underlying scientific laws that govern all complex systems. Law, laws that our reigning paradigm of progress completely ignores. Mm -hmm. And those are limits to growth, the second law of thermodynamics, and the law of self-organization in complex systems, the increase in complexity over time. Can we talk about some of those? Like sure. just give like a thumbnail of, of what they are? I mean, limits to growth, <laughs> of course, that was a famous book that came out. Uh, right. When was Meadows. that, in the 80s? No, that was, I think, 1972. Yeah, um, so limits to growth happens because of nestedness. We were talking about nestedness. So we have all these systems nested within one another. So like for in our, our bodies, we have mitochondria in our cells. Our cells are in organs. Organs are in bodies. You know, humans make up populations. We're meshed, nested in a larger biospheric system. So everything's nested. Because of that, if any one system grows to the point where it starts extracting energy materials from the larger system it's nested within at a rate that is faster than replenishment, that larger system becomes degraded. And that sets up a, a self-regulating feedback loop, which eventually is going to quash that growth. It, you know, it's not a question of it'll if it'll happen. It will happen um, if the growth doesn't stop before that. The, 
the larger system will stop it. Um, so, you know, we don't have any examples of systems that sustain themselves that keep growing. We don't have anything like that. Uh, everything we can think about that sustains itself eventually reaches its limits, mm -hmm. whether it's the size of the biggest tree or the size of the largest dinosaur or population sizes, um, ecosystem development. Um, everything eventually reaches limits, and we're approaching those. I think, you know, the feedback loop that probably will be the most impacted is probably going to be climate change yeah. because um, we're degrading the system to the point where we're going to start to see rates of change that are so fast, we're going to have real difficulty adjusting to them in terms of food production, access to fresh water, infrastructure. As those things start becoming stronger and stronger forces, it's going to really start to um, unravel the system we're involved in if we don't change it. And you make the point, it's, it's interesting because this book was published in 2006, right? Mm -hmm. And since then, we had a major recession and climate change has been speeding up, really. Like you were talking about Katrina and how the flooding in um, the Gulf area screwed up gasoline supplies mm -hmm. and gas prices. Well, we've had several of those since then. Um where you have this concentration of of production of something and it just, you know, the transit lines just mm -hmm. don't work anymore. The system can't handle it anymore. Yeah. And so that seems to be happening more and more frequently. Oh, it is. Yeah. And it's not being released yet, but I think probably for the next five years you're going to start seeing research coming out of the climate change community. Because they've been, the modeling's been predicting like a two, three foot sea level change by the end of the century. I'm hearing a lot of people talking about 10 to 12 now. Yes. And, you know, 2 to 3 is significant. 10 to 12 could be a game changer because so many of the urban centers around the world would be inundated. And the, just the cost of trying to protect uh, cities from that sort of event, particularly when we're getting these more and more powerful, you know, coastal storms, um, that's going to be a, a big, big factor. And anyone who says, oh, we'll rebuild... No, you won't. <laughs> Not for long. Well, I mean, uh, like, you know, it's all costs. And what's, where's the money going to come from? Right. I mean, you can see the federal government is already strapped to the point where, and even um, in this state, uh, which is one of the most affluent states per capita in the country. The state New, of New Hampshire, Hampshire is? It really? Is. It is. You know, the roads are just falling apart. Yeah. You know, they're just falling apart. And there doesn't seem the willpower to really access the money. And as these things get more and more and more costly, there's just not going to be the resources to deal with it. Right. So let's talk about the second law of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. Now, this is, these are not just scientific laws that are kind of esoteric. These are kind of greatest hits, fits all kinds of situations. Yeah. The second law of thermodynamics is a classic and how does that influence this whole growth idea? Well, there's idea? two major uh, laws of thermodynamics. The first law is the law of conservation of energy, which states that energy can't be created nor destroyed. It's a pretty profound thing. It means all the energy in the universe today is exactly what it was like 13.8 billion years ago. Um, but it's the second law from a sustainability point of view that's the critical one to focus on, because that's the law of transformation of energy. It states that Although we can't create or destroy energy, we can transform it from one form to another. So 
Right now, out in the forest out here, sunlight is being captured and transformed into chemical bond energy to put wood into the trees that are growing. That's a transformation. I can go out and cut some of my cordwood in my woodlot out here, bring it in and burn it in my wood stove, and then I'm gonna get another transformation. I'm gonna get that chemical bond energy. It's gonna be transformed into heat energy. Mm -hmm. But the kicker to the second law is that whenever you transform energy, within the system where that transformation occurs, there's always some loss of energy. You can't get a 100% efficient transformation. So what that means for open systems, like our bodies or pretty much all the systems we can think about, um, they can be in one of three states, energetic states. If they're taking in more energy from the larger system that they're uh, nested within, then they're giving off from their transformations, those systems grow. Uh, so they store that energy and they grow. So we did that when we were, you know, children up to adulthood. We mm -hmm. took in more energy than we, we gave off and our bodies grew. But then when systems reach maturity, they become dynamic equilibrium. Mm -hmm. It means the amount of energy that's coming in is equal the amount that's being released from transformation. So that's what happens to us as adults. We stop growing. We take in about 2,000 kilocalories of energy a day in food, and we give off about 2,000 kilocalories of energy a day in heat. Mm -hmm. But it's a third state that's the one that relates to the myth of progress, and that is a system that's taking in less energy than it's releasing from its transformations, and that's a system that becomes entropic. And entropy is often said to be a process that is a, a system bleeds off energy it moves from a state of order to disorder. Mm -hmm. And I don't like those terms because they're very okay. subjective. Um, I used to be a dorm head in the dorm in an <laughs> independent secondary school and I had a girls dorm. Um, and you know, these high school students, every Sunday we do room inspections to help them try to keep their rooms orderly. Yeah. And their idea of order and my idea of order were really, really different. So. A much more objective way to measure entropy is that as a system loses energy, uh, it moves from a state of complexity to simplicity and from a state of concentration of energy and materials to a state of diffusion. So, for example, imagine a tree getting knocked over in a windstorm. Mm -hmm. It dies. Now it's entropic. Um, as decomposing organisms go into it and start extracting energy out of it, what happens to that tree is it starts being simplified. It's complex molecules of wood and soil start breaking down to carbon dioxide and water, and they diffuse out into the air. And after a number of decades, the tree is gone. It's been completely reduced to very simple molecules that are diffused out in the air and the soil, and it's gone. So um, this might not seem like it has big implications, but the biosphere, life on this planet, has been around for about 3.8 billion years. That's a really long time. So to get an idea of how long that is, if you thought of the thickness of a sheet of paper equaling a century, mm -hmm. to get a stack of paper that would represent 3.8 billion years, you'd need a stack of paper, each sheet representing a century that would be over three miles in height. Oh, my God. I know. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that you don't realize no. until, yeah. So for the first 3.5 billion years, the biosphere was... Um, an anti-entropic system. It was taking in more energy that was bleeding off its transformations. That built up the 21% oxygen level in the atmosphere. That built up all the stored carbon in things like fossil fuels and mm -hmm. coal. Um, and then about 300 million years ago, the 
the biosphere matured, became a dynamic equilibrium system. But for the first time in its history, in the last century or so, because of our energy transformations that we're responsible for as humans, uh, the Earth is now an entropic system. We are bleeding off more energy out of the system that's being replaced by solar gain. And so every single environmental problem we're looking at is a problem of entropy. You think about it, you'll see that you're looking at systems that are being simplified or concentrated stores of energy and materials that are being diffused. So, for example, if you look at fossil fuels, and they accumulated a long time ago uh, under conditions of pressure, heat, whatever, and they were underground, and then you extract it, and then it's all over. It's burning yeah. all over the planet. What you're doing is you're taking concentrated stores of carbon, mm -hmm. and you're diffusing them as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Right. And that's, of course, creating now more entropy because through climate change, that's causing real disruptions of ecosystems and simplification of ecosystems. So, yeah, that's an entropic process. Burning fossil fuel is an entropic process. So one species has reversed. <laughs> that's yeah. really bizarre, it's, Like isn't I it? said, it's, it's never happened before that yeah. one species could, could do this. But yeah. we're doing it. Yeah. And that means we're degrading our biospheric system. And this is where the this is the linkage between the second law of thermodynamics and limits to growth. Um, we're degrading that system. And eventually the feedback is gonna curtail this growth. If we don't do it ourselves, it'll be it'll, it'll do it. The biosphere will do it. It'll start dismantling the socioeconomic system. And so meanwhile we're living with all these systems nested into all kinds of systems, but we're operating on a linear scale mm -hmm. you know past present future the future right. can be somewhat predicted by the past there's a certain kind of stability to it and that's not actually what happens no because that completely disavows feedback loops it just means that sort of somehow our socioeconomic system is isolated it's in a void and it's not it's nested in a in the biosphere and there's feedback that's happening it's starting already and it's going to get stronger the further down this path we go. So let's talk about the two different kinds of feedback loops. Um, I, you know, it can be confusing at first glance that negative feedback keeps something at the status quo, but I love you. And then positive feedback, you think, oh, positive. Yeah. But actually, as you put it so aptly, that's where you keep putting well, the straws on the camel. Yeah, the, the, the terms are not great because... You know, negative feedback, you could think of that like negative criticism. That's not good. <laughs> or something that's going to stop. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and positive you think is good. They're both very good in their appropriate setting. Mm -hmm. So if you have an anti-entropic system that's growing, mm -hmm. um, positive feedback is really important because, uh, and actually a better term for it is self-reinforcing feedback. Okay. So what that means is that each time you go around the feedback loop, whatever condition started it has gotten stronger and it keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's what brings about bifurcation events. Like this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. You keep loading it up, loading it up, loading it up. And eventually the system changes. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a bifurcation event. Those are really critical in the developmental phases of a system. So like in our development, our first bifurcation event was gastrulation where, you know, after, we were um, this, this ball of about a few hundred cells due to um, 
positive or self-reinforcing feedback in that and developing embryo, you get gastrulation and the whole thing enfolds in. And we get now the three basic dermal layers, ectoderm, mesoderm, and endoderm. That increased the complexity. So bifurcation events do this. Same thing happened with limb buds, with the development of the brain and the notochord. These all happen in bifurcation events. Mm -hmm. um, in our democracy, women's suffrage would have brought about a bifurcation event. It mm -hmm. took you know, a good 70 years, but eventually the feedback got to the point where the Congress was forced to give women the right to vote. Same thing with the civil rights movement, a much faster one now with same-sex marriage, which yeah. happened really fast. But these are all, you know, signs of a system that is developing, and they're important in the development of the system. Uh, negative feedback, which is probably better called um, self-regulating feedback, is what keeps systems, once they reach maturity, on an even keel. So these positive... Uh, Self-reinforcing feedback loops, really important in developing systems. Negative self-regulating feedback, very important in um, mature systems because mm -hmm. it keeps them on even keel. If you start getting positive feedback in a mature system, it can be really dangerous. Positive feedback in a mature system. Yes. Okay, so, so what would be an example of that? That would be an example like, um, let's say... You're out in the desert and you haven't had enough water mm -hmm. and you have your adult mature system body and all of a sudden you start going into a positive feedback loop where you can't regulate your temperature and okay. it keeps going up and up and up and eventually would result in death. Mm -hmm. So um, positive feedback is always going to move the system away from where it is its status quo is. Mm -hmm. And in a mature system, that's usually a very bad thing. Yeah, so let me give another example where negative feedback can be really bad in a social system. That's, mm -hmm. what, that's what a dictatorship is. It uses real strong repressive force to maintain a status quo that doesn't allow the system to develop and get better and better and better and more and more complex. It keeps it locked down. So that would be an example of um, negative feedback in a system that really needs to progress and develop. And yet the, the, using a military, for example, that's kind of an interjection of, of energy, isn't it? Yeah, um, but you can do it to repress a populace yeah. so they can't initiate um, the change. So it needed. simplifies. Yeah, it yeah. does. Yeah. Just all oppressed and mm -hmm. there, aren't, there isn't a diversity of opinion right. or power or whatever. Right. And what about the law of self-organization? Well, I think the first two laws, limits to growth and uh, the second law, frame why our current trajectory will fail. Um, we have to change it. And the, 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 the principle or law of self-organization is a wonderful model for how we can create socioeconomic systems that are resilient and stable and energy efficient and thrive. Uh, Self-organization in the biosphere was um, played out through coevolution, mm -hmm. and it's what's made life not just sustain itself for 3.8 billion years, but to thrive. So it's a great, great model. So what self-organization is in that anti-entropic growth phase of a system, that if a system self-organizes, it not only gets bigger, but it gets more complex. Mm -hmm. Um, and the complexities derived from the parts within the system becoming ever more specialized through time and tightly integrated together in ways such that each part doing what it needs to do is creating conditions that sustain the whole. 
And as a result, these systems grow increasingly resilient, resilient, stable, and energy efficient. Um, so that is what's played out in nature. It's a great model, and it's a model we can use in all human systems to make them much more energy efficient, much more resilient, and much more stable. So how would you do that? What would be an example of that? Well, an example of that would be, um, I should mention that um, Western scientists didn't come upon this idea of self-organization until about 40, 50 years ago. Oh my God, really? Yeah. And Was it, did it exist elsewhere? Oh, it did. In, the, in thinking? Oh Where? yeah. Well, <laughs> one place it existed was in a book written in 1776 by Adam Smith called The Wealth of Nations. Ah, oh, so, uh-huh. Now in that book, one of the things that intrigues him, he's looking at a pre-industrial merchant economy, and he's looking at all these village merchants who are all doing what they're doing out of their own self-interest, but without anyone directing it, they've created a system where they're supporting each other. Mm -hmm. So he says, well, you know, you've got the blacksmith and you got the butcher and you've got the baker and the brewer. They're each doing what they're doing, but the blacksmith's making knives that get sold to the butcher. The butcher's cutting meat, which gets sold back to the blacksmith. And they've created this network of relationships that's supporting them all, even mm -hmm. though what they're doing is just for their own self gain. Now he called this the invisible hand of the economy. If you look at it, what he was really looking at was a sort self-organizational model of an economy mm -hmm. where you have very specialized businesses that are integrated together in ways that's mutually supportive. And that's how it works out in the natural world. Um, you know, we have all these different species, each doing their own specialized thing. And together they create a system that is completely resilient and stable. There's no waste. That's very energy efficient. Um, so that's what he was seeing in an economic context. But if you look at you know, our economy today, we've moved way away from that. Um, you could look at any sector, whether it's media, financial, agriculture, pharmaceuticals, energy, um, whatever, retail, and you'll find that the bulk of the capital is going through just a handful of really large corporate entities. Yes. And these mm -hmm. corporations are not specialists. They're generalists. So you go into a Walmart, they're selling everything. And they're not really interested in having integrated relationships that are mutually supported with others in their sectors. They just assume dominate the sector if they could through competitive exclusion or mergers or acquisitions. And what that has created is a system that is a lot less resilient and stable. So um, you can see this, for example, with the financial meltdown of 2008. At that time, 54% uh, of all the banking assets in this country are held by just 10 banks, an mm. incredible concentration of, of capital in a, in a few banks. And they weren't integrated in ways that would really bolster the system. Mm -hmm. So once Lehman Brothers failed, if the federal government hadn't rushed in to prop up the system, it would have cascaded through. And that recession would have been a real depression. The irony is today, because of so many failed banks that were bought up by the existing big banks, um, the system's less self-organized today than it was. Now, I think 82% of all mm. the banking assets are held in the top 10 banks. So it's even more concentrated. So what, what self-organization does is through time, it decentralizes all critical functional roles. And that's where the resiliency and stability come in. Because if any one player goes extinct or mm -hmm. fails, there's so many others doing the exact same thing. It's the secret why these ecosystems are so marvelous. Because we don't have one decomposer out there. We've got thousands and thousands of them. We don't have one pollinator. We have thousands mm -hmm. of them. So if, 
any one species goes extinct, mm -hmm. there's so many others carrying on the same job. But in our current uh, system, where we've concentrated down, there's just not the resiliency or the stability. So uh, a good example of this would be um, in Detroit. Uh, in 1980, the vast majority of the jobs in Detroit were directly or tangentially related to the auto industry. Right. And then the auto industry started really losing traction in the United States. The, the impact in Detroit in the next 20 years was dramatic because there's such a concentration with one industry that in the next 20 years, they lost over one half their residence, leaving, I think, 200,000 empty buildings that had to be demolished and then infrastructure in tatters in the city bankrupt because they're too concentrated with just one business. If they'd had you know, other employers doing other things, that system would have been better. So that is a big problem. We're creating socioeconomic systems to become less and less resilient and less and less stable. And they're also terribly energy inefficient. So what's given rise to this? What's allowed us to move from the Adam Smith model to this current one, we're cheap, very economically cheap, but very flexible energy resources in the form of petroleum and electricity, mm -hmm. which allowed mechanization. And in business, the highest cost is employees. So if you can mechanize, you can become way more profitable economically. Um, and so you do that by having machines take the role of humans. And what happens right away is your energy footprint goes way up. Is now yes. not only the energy to run all these machines, but all the embedded energy in the machine. So um, I think a good example of this would be uh, a friend of mine has a farm down in Orange, Massachusetts called uh, Seeds of Solidarity Farm. He started that farm in the 1990s. And at that point, he said, you know, I never see anywhere in the world where in natural ecosystems, the soil is turned over every year. Right. The soil develops and gets more complex and gets more nutrient holding capacity and has more carbon in it. It holds moisture better. Why would you want to keep disturbing your soil every year? So he thought, I'm going to start my farm and I'm just going to do no-till agriculture. So he had this area that he bought um, that had was a forested parcel that had uh, one half acre in the middle of it that had been cleared out as a yarding area where the last logging had brought up the logs, the trucks could pick them up. And it had grown back up into, you know, young trees and shrub. And he thought, all right, I'm going to start my gardens here. I'm going to cut down these things. And I thought, now, how do I kill off the root vegetation so I can, you know, it doesn't come back? And he thought, well, I guess I'll have to cover the black plastic. But he didn't like that idea. So driving through town, there was a furniture factory. And he saw this huge stack of cardboard behind it. Uh -huh. And he thought, why, I wonder if I put cardboard down and covered up with mulch hay, if that would do it. And sure enough, it did. Um, he is now farming there uh, with hardly energy, any ener energy inputs other than his human labor. He farms about two acres. But his two acres produce a higher productivity of food than any farm in the state. And he started off with really poor soils, are now rated the most uh, amazing soils, agricultural soils in the state of Massachusetts. So in any case... He, it's an example of how you can do something without any energy inputs. He, has, he doesn't use any you know, equipment, power equipment, doesn't use any petroleum. He just uses his human labor, and he uses uh, irrigation systems that are run by solar panels. Mm -hmm. um, now, a good friend of his is a guy that started the People's Pint in Greenfield. 
if you go to that, this is a, a brew pub that is all locally sourced foods. It's a great, great place. Mm. And you'll see only one beef entree on the menu. It's hamburgers. And uh, he sources his meat from another farmer that's about 10 miles away that just makes organic grass-fed beef. So if you think about the amount of embedded energy in the beef coming to him, and I'm not even going to go into the whole process of raising the, the right. steers, but... Mm -hmm. That's You're talking good, to a vegetarian. Yeah. So well, that's anyways, <laughs> so anyways, there's you know, for him, um, there's going to be energy in actually the grinding of the meat and slaughtering the animal, grinding the meat, and then shipping it ten miles away to his restaurant. Thank you for not saying processing. Yeah, where they you know are going to then just make right. it by hand to patties. But if you look at the largest hamburger producer in the world, McDonald's. Oh my God. Um, the amount of embedded energy. And each pound of hamburger they produce is huge compared to what's going on the people's pint because they have steers being raised around the world and shipped thousands of miles to slaughterhouses. And then all of that is shipped hundreds and hundreds of miles, maybe thousand miles to processing plants where all this is done by machines. Right. The patties are made by machines. They're wrapped, they're boxed, they're frozen, and they're shipped, you know, to distribution centers, and then they're shipped to the retail restaurants. And just that process has so much more embedded energy in it. Not to mention that what they're feeding the beef well, cattle before probably comes from South America, well, where they've it's, ripped it's, apart rainforest to grow soybeans. Yeah. No, it's true. It's it's you know, and yes, if you looked at probably the energy input into growing one steer from yeah. McDonald's and yeah. one on this farm, yeah. it's going to be way times more. So what we've done is, as we've moved away from self-organization economically, and we've concentrated capital in fewer and fewer hands, bigger and bigger corporations, which are now transnational. It's all been done through mechanization, but it's boosted the amount of energy consumption dramatically. So um, this is one of our big, big problems. Um, I think that agriculture now is the single most largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, right. And, you know, a lot of that is in the huge amounts of embedded energy going into the system. We have got to move back from that. We have got to re-self-organize, re-localize, and regionalize our economies. I'm not suggesting we get rid of all large corporations, but we've gone way too far down that road. And it's very energy inefficient, which is creating an incredible amount of biospheric entropy. And it's not resilient and it's not stable either. There's a quote here from uh, The Myth of Progress that I really like. Because people get confused, well, how do I make decisions and about what is better for the environment? And you say, whenever you are trying to make the right environmental decision, just contemplate which action will generate the least amount of energy transformations. Yeah. Not all of those transformations might be readily visible, right. but it doesn't take much to find out you know, yeah. where, they're, where they're coming in from. Yeah, I think if you contemplate about it a, a bit, you can start to think, well, I think that this is going to probably be the wiser decision. Mm -hmm. But that really is the crux of it all, is that we're using more energy than, than is sustainable. And mm -hmm. the result is we're creating um, biospheric degradation, and we're getting feedback loops that are going to really, um, if we don't do anything about it, it's not going to be a very pretty picture. The consumer culture that we live in, and you get cheap plastic stuff from China or wherever you get it from, 
and then it lasts a few years, and then what do you do with it? You know, right. so there's just so much waste associated with consumerism, and yet that's what we're encouraged to do. I, I find that, you know, since I live in a very rural area, there's not much of a shopping incentive. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you go into a city, it's so noticeable. Buy this, buy this, eat this, try this. We don't realize until we step back from it a little bit how much of that pressure is there. Yeah, it's true. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Studies have shown that as we develop more and more energy-efficient technologies in a country like the United States, um, our per capita energy doesn't go down, it goes up each time. But, but a lot of it also is in the embedded energy of the materials okay. we buy and consume. Um, because that's all hidden. People don't think about, well, what was the energy cost of creating this thing? Right. It's all embedded in there and it's hidden from view. Um, the fifth grade classroom at the Grafton School over in Grafton, Vermont. Oh, excuse me, of... you have a deer running right out in the Yeah, it's very good. Um, we had a go oh, here comes the fawn. Yeah, fawn. Yeah. Yep, there it is. Oh, how cute. Yeah, the fawn, oh, there you the are. first day that they came out, that fawn had probably never been out in an open area like this, oh, and really? it was just like a piece of popcorn. It was just <laughs> bouncing around everywhere. <laughs> now it's so running around. Cute, yeah. Oh, it's so funny. It's so cute. <laughs> so anyways, the fifth graders at the Grafton School um, decided to investigate plastic grocery store bags. Okay. And what they found out that at that time, I think something like 1,500 bags were being produced per second, 24 hours a day in the United States. Wow. So what they did was they got everyone to bring in plastic bags until they had 1,500 of them, and they made a chain, and they wrapped the town green in it, and then they put up a kiosk and then said, this represents the number of bags made every second. And then they just started doing the math out, you know, about how many there were a, an hour, a day, wow. a year. And then they started going into how much embedded energy was in them from the petroleum needed to make them. And it was astounding, just that one item. Um, within days, uh, the town passed a regulation to ban plastic bags wow. for sale in the town. Good for that. Um, because of this, see, this is ridiculous. Why are we, you know, there's other ways we can do this without having to use up all this energy. So something like that can be very impactful because it just takes that hidden embedded energy and brings it forth so you can really see it. Right, right. And I think it was something like a, a ga- it took about a gallon of petroleum to produce 50 of these bags. Yeah, wow. that would mean, what, two gallons every hundred. So that'd be like 30 gallons every second going to plastic bag. And okay. that's not even factoring in what happens after you use them. No, no. That's really crazy. get to this linear thing because you mentioned in in the myth of progress that for example Aristotle mm-hmm. was when he was looking at how nature worked uh, he was looking at self-organizing mm-hmm. actions in nature and which he called entelechy right yeah and um, and then there was a shift. What what do you think? Well, happened? it was. I mean, it was pretty much the work of first Galileo and then Rene Descartes that created the shift. I mean, it shifted the whole view of Western science from really what had previously been a more holistic, complex approach to seeing the world to a very linear approach that focused on 
focusing on the parts that something is composed of. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the reductionism comes in. I mean, I have this, this paradigm called linear reductionism. In order to understand something, you take it apart. And if you know all the parts and you know how they fit together, you know the system. Um, but the problem is, and, and yeah, to Descartes, he saw no difference between contrivances, machines built by people, and people. He thought they're the same. To him, a system, the sum of its parts, equaled its whole. I have to say, and I've said this several times before in other episodes, that you know that game where if you could go back in time and kill somebody, mm -hmm. who would you kill? And people always say Hitler. Mm -hmm. I would have done Descartes. <laughs> but now I've moved even further back to mm -hmm. Augustine mm -hmm. because I think he had a lot to do with the soullessness of matter. Mm -hmm. That if it was matter, it wasn't spiritual and it, and therefore it didn't count, which of right. course he got in large part from Plato. But anyway, go yeah. ahead. So, um, <clears throat> but starting, I guess, in the late 1800s as we're moving to the early 1900s, that all these people doing research in different disciplines that were using this sort of linear reductionistic model of research. So people in anthropology, sociology, psychology, biology, ecology, cybernetics, meteorology, things like that. And they all started to, many of them started to realize this doesn't work. That, you know, um, this really, this approach doesn't help us understand the subject matter we're looking at mm -hmm. because it's way more dynamic than that. And there are things like emergent properties that you can't predict. I mean, they're saying, you know, we're seeing these systems that the whole is much greater than the sum of the parts. And so that's, you know, brought about really this push for a new scientific model in Western science, which brought up complex systems, uh, which self-organization was one of the principles embedded within it. Um, that, yeah, systems are incredibly more dynamic. They're not linear. They feed back on themselves. They are emergent properties. They can bifurcate. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it was 400 years of this really being enmeshed in this linear paradigm, but it's still the ruling paradigm, and it's still complexity is not being taught, you know, in our high schools and colleges, which is a shame because we really need to understand this stuff. Oh, I think it should be taught in grade school. Well, it's not hard. There's a way to do that, yeah. Yeah, I actually have... Um, one of the uh, programs at Antioch that I teach in is our Educating for Sustainability program. So mm -hmm. it's, it's um, you know, teachers that are already fully involved in their schools coming in to get a master's. Um, and they're doing amazing things, you know, at all grade levels. They, you know, you can start teaching about complexity just by teaching about relationality. Mm -hmm. Because that's where the emergent properties come from, from the interrelationships that form in a system. That's where the emergent properties come from. It's the key to why self-organization works, because it's not just that the system getting more complex, but the integration of all those parts together in meaningful ways is critical. So you can do that with kindergartners, talking about relationality, and it can be built on later. Um, and that's what the more is in more than the sum of its parts. That's right. right? That's mm -hmm. the more. It and is. It's all those relationships that give rise to the stuff you can't predict by just looking at the parts. You know, when I was talking with Stephanie Kaza, she mentioned an exercise of Joanna Macy's mm -hmm. of milling, systems milling, where you choose two people. <laughs> You're in a group of people, say 30 people. You choose two people and you are going to remain equidistant from them mm -hmm. without their knowing it. Right. And meanwhile, they've chosen two people. people. Right. And so what happens after that? You can't predict it. No, and it, it does. <laughs> the movement becomes, there's, it's, yeah, it's... Um, and that's just it. That's a very simple thing that's not linear. Right. And that sets up 
all this feedback, which is constantly changing the internal dynamics of so people are moving all over the place and that's causing everyone else to move. And it just, it's constantly changing. You say that we need to return to ancient values and not traditional values as it's touted by right-wing political people, but ancient values. And I love the description that you have in here of walking along this, this pathway in, in Mexico and how you just know that so many people walked along there because of the way the stone is. And so what are some of these ancient values that we're talking about? Well, I think the ones that I think are inherent in us, in our, our I think our emotional well-being, are um, being intimately connected to the natural world. You know, until only very recently have people seen themselves as apart from the natural world. We, right. You know, we always, you know, our species has been on this planet for 200,000 years. So for more than 95% of that time, people saw themselves as a part of the natural world. They were, they were as much a part of it as everything else. They shared it with everything else. Including the risks. Yeah. So I think that's a really critical relation for us, relationship for us to be, you know, really related to the natural world. I think it's critical for us to be tightly um, related to our community. Mm-hmm. You know, we're a very social species. I think um, another thing that, you know, that I think goes way back is storytelling mm. and stories that embed the human community in the natural world. So that they can extract meaning out of it. And then finally, I think we need to be related to ourselves through reflective practice, which, you know, all these things have eroded in our culture dramatically. I mean, if you think about it, um, one of my students in that Educating for Sustainability program was a secondary Spanish teacher. And she worked at the Cambridge School down in Boston. And before the earthquake hit Haiti, she would go down there every year with a group of her Spanish-speaking students, their juniors, their junior year. And these students, inevitably, they'd end up in these very, very poor villages. But they'd come into the village, and they'd be greeted so warmly, and they could hear music, and people really happy to see them and just host them in whatever way they could. And they kept having these experiences every year about, I don't understand this. They're very poor, but they're happy. And they said, you know, I grew up in this place. I don't even see my neighbors. Right. I know my neighbors. Right. So it's just, you know, what our socioeconomic system has done is it's tended to isolate us. It's isolated us out of community. It's even within families that's happened. It's isolated us with the connection to the natural world. And it's now with such a strong digital interface, and we're getting so much uh, information thrown at us, it's isolating us from reflective practice with ourselves, which is essential for, I think, developing understanding and wisdom. So these are things that have eroded dramatically in our culture. Even seeing, since you wrote this book, I'm sure these the use of cell phones has increased. And you just see people walking with their face in a screen, not knowing where they're going, no. often to their own danger. You know, what's around you? I just consider that kind of a loss. It is a loss, and it's... It's a radical change. It's, it's really a radical experiment. They, I think um, at the University of Maryland a number of years ago, they decided to do a, a sort of an experiment. They, they asked for 500 freshman volunteers. And they said, all we want you to do is to not use any digital interface for 24 hours. So no cell phones, no computers, nothing. They, they started seeing withdrawal symptoms <laughs> in those students. So, and I mean, there are students that would be in their dorm room 
Their friends would be down the hall in their room, and they're so used to texting to set up social engagements, it didn't occur to them to get out of their room, walk down the hall, and knock on their door and say, let's go out and do something. And so they ended up staying in their room and doing nothing. And uh, that's, that's just freaky. It is. <laughs> you talk about not having the reflective capability, just having quiet. Yeah. It's so hard to find quiet where, you know, maybe what you're hearing is just the other animals who live mm -hmm. in the area. And also it leads to the, the, the point that you made here about that we live physically comfortable lives by virtue of the reductionism that has produced technology, mm -hmm. different kinds of creature comforts, energy, etc., but experientially poor. Yeah. This might be a stretch, but the opioid addiction yeah. situation. It's not in a void. It's yeah, it's not happening separate from everything else. No. And and to me, when I hear people say, Oh, these people need treatment, <laughs> treatment to do what? To go back into a society that doesn't have enough meaning to sustain people. Yeah. I, that's how I see it. What do you think? No, I think it's true. I mean, it's interesting. There was a, another study done about 10 years after the Vietnam War ended. And um, this study was focused on a number of Vietnam War era protesters who didn't want to do anything illegal but did not want to fund the war. So they brought their earned income levels down to the point that they wouldn't be taxable. So they did this through bartering and through growing a lot of their own food for sharing resources, like sharing a car, doing all sorts of stuff. And so after the war is done, 10 years after, someone decided to do a follow-up study and see if these people went back up to their previous level of affluency after the war is done. And the most did, but I think about a third didn't. But of those third, they all had the pretty much the exact same answer of why they had not done that. And they said, you know, my life is richer now. I have all this time to be my garden, to write poetry, which I stopped doing, to play music, which I stopped doing, to spend time with my neighbors and my family. Um, my life is much richer now than it ever was. Um, and I'm not going back to that because I got removed and isolated from all that at my higher level of affluency. So... Yeah, we've made a trade. We've traded for physical comfort, and we've given up the relationality piece, which I think is critical to our well-being. And you mentioned you mentioned very early in the book how when you grew up, where did you grow up, by the way? In Old Greenwich, Connecticut. Oh, okay. Down in coastal Connecticut. So you you know there were wooded <laughs> areas, and you played in them as kids, and they fed your imagination. And someone comes in and starts building houses on it. I went through that same kind of experience. Everyone, I think, our age that yeah. I've talked to has. Uh, a childhood place was significant for them that yes. is no longer right. that place. It's all been developed and smothered and eradicated. Um, and simplified. People might look at a field and say, oh, I remember hearing some woman say that she thought, you know, there should be a development there because, well, it's just sitting there. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. And how they call it raw land. It's mm -hmm. not raw. It's cooking. Mm -hmm. It's cooking on all four burners, you know. And you mentioned how it's hard to look at this culture from a standpoint of progress when there's so much loss. Mm -hmm. And so we've lost those places that were important to us that under other circumstances would have fed generation upon generation upon generation and would have been the basis for our stories and our lives. And, and we've lost any connection. Mm -hmm. so, so what do you suggest to somebody? It's a good way to start if, 
if they're feeling this and, you know, they think, oh, I want to reconnect myself. But right. say, say they live in a city or something. Yeah. You know? Every city, there are areas, you know, there are parks, there are areas that um, are often abandoned places that are going back. You know, it's amazing. You get like little lots that are just abandoned. Mm-hmm. It becomes a playground for children in the area. They're, they're going to be in there because they want to be in there. But I think, you know, if you're creative, even if you're in an urban setting, you're going to be able to find places where you mm-hmm. can go to have a, an experience of the natural world that's fuller than just what you get on the city streets. And there's places where you can go to start forming community. I don't care where you are, you know, with your, with your neighbors and stuff to reach out and figure out ways to create community. Um, and then finding time and space in your own life to really disconnect from stuff so you can reflect. Mm-hmm. And reflective practice can happen through contemplation, meditation, just taking a walk, uh, being involved in the arts, um, playing music, anything that you know sort of gets you out of the state where you're just constantly maybe in your head thinking about stuff. It lets that all sort of settle down and start to sift out. Um, so these are things I think people can do. Mm-hmm. And everybody can do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, I really, I really appreciate this book. It's one of my all-time favorites. I have talked about this book at cocktail parties and, and loaned it to people. And The Myth of Progress Toward a Sustainable Future, it's, it's just you really need to have to understand why we're in this, right. why we're in this jam. You know, and the other thing about that book, it had absolutely no promotional stuff. It was mm-hmm. the only book I've done that had nothing. And there's no, nothing came out in newspapers about it. There were no bookstore events. There was nothing. But it caught on by word of mouth. And it's used now in a lot of college and high school classrooms. Um, and a lot. As it should be. Yeah. Well, that's another idea. I mean, what do, if people want to know more about systems, can you suggest places? Well, there's, there's um, a book that was made post-haste, I guess, by Donella Meadows, Thinking in Systems, Thinking in systems is a yeah. very good one. Uh-huh. Um, I think, you know, the chapter, the first chapter here mm-hmm. on complexity is probably a good start because it, it breaks it down pretty in a pretty accessible way. Um, there's a lot of books out there in complexity mm-hmm. now. I think a, another good one, it's, it's not well written, but Capra's book, The Web of Life, really uh-huh. gets into complexity of, of living systems mm-hmm. and feedback loops and things like that, self-organization. I've seen a few things on YouTube, for example. Oh, there's a lot. Like Complexity Studio or yeah. something, which for me, I if I see something moving, it helps me. As, if you're talking about loops yeah. and stuff, oh, yeah. it's it's easier for me to see something moving. I don't know why. But um, it's really, I, I hope more people will take it upon themselves to learn about this because it also makes... It also makes your life easier. I mean, even if it's going to Thanksgiving dinner with your family and there are all these different kinds of people, well, that kind of becomes a system. Yeah, And, <laughs> you know, so don't expect it to be linear. Right, it's not going to be <laughs> There's going to be a loop in there. So something's going to get loopy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tom. I really, really appreciate it. Great. And, I'm glad uh, this worked out. Yeah, me too. Thanks to Tom Wessels, and thank you for listening. Be sure to get the book, The Myth of Progress. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the Big Chew podcast at www.meetyourmyth.com or on iTunes or Stitcher. We have episodes every two weeks. We've got some great ones coming up, so bye for now.